Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. As we begin a late start to the season of Advent this year, we focus today on the theme of hope. While we live in a world of counterfeits, the scriptures are clear. There is only one real, true source for hope, and it comes to believers through God's indwelling presence. Thanks for listening today as we seek to refocus our attention away from the hustle and bustle of the world striving during Christmas. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Well, while we were enjoying the sand and the sun, uh, I did take advantage of our time there to uh, go and uh, go snorkeling uh, with Micah. And one of the times where we were underwater, and if you've ever been snorkeling, you know that the the goggles that you wear kind of limit your vision and you only can see a certain direction. I noticed something floating in front of me in the water. It was a little translucent with tentacles coming off the back of it. It was indeed a jellyfish. Uh, This jellyfish, and I'm used to seeing some, but this one looked differently. It had four distinct corners to it with long tentacles behind it. It actually looked as to what I'm familiar with of something called a box jellyfish. The box jellyfish is not native to the Caribbean, but they do have one offshoot from that species, and they have affectionately named it the sea wasp. And it doesn't quite carry the venom that the box jellyfish does, but uh, you'll know it if you run into it. Uh, Thankfully, we didn't, but it got me thinking uh, as to just the nature of venom and the way that it can uh, just destroy people. Um, If you um, can imagine with me, even the box jellyfish, the most deadliest venom on earth, uh, one sting has the potential to kill up to 60 grown men. uh, That imagine that was you. Imagine you got stung by this uh, vile, deadly animal. And now, with certainty, you know your future ahead of you is death. Unless you get the anti-venom. Unless you get the antidote that must be injected into your system. Now, if any one of us happened to have such a terrible incident happen, I know without a doubt we would be doing everything we could to try to find that anti-venom and and then inject it into the system. And here's the deal with anti-venom. It has to travel throughout the whole system, right? So it needs to go into the circulatory system and travel through the blood in order to counteract those negative deadly effects. You can't leave it outside of you. You can't let it sit there. You have to internalize it. You have to make it part of you. I thought about this as a metaphor for the Christian life. And that every one of you today entered this world Stung by a venom called sin. A bad news for you today, it's deadly. It kills 100% of those it affects. But the good news is, there has been offered for you, given a freely, you don't even have to pay for it, by God, a kind of anti-venom for this disease. And it comes through the blood of Jesus. Now here, here, here's why I'm thinking of this. One of the problems that I feel that we have in church is that we have grown accustomed to attending a service or coming to a building and leaving Jesus in the sanctity of the sanctuary and the holiness that we come and pretend many times with on a Sunday morning. And then you go back to your daily lives, back into the, um, I was going to say fires of hell, but you know sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like the ungodliness of this world. It just squelches any light that came from the Spirit of God. After enough time of doing this, we sadly become accustomed to that pattern. What hope would you have if you got stung by one of these venomous creatures, but you left the anti-venom sitting on the shelf? What hope would you really have? 
Well, I, I exercise. I'm pretty healthy. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, right? I eat my Wheaties. <laughs> nope. You're going to die. Unless you take that which has been offered and you don't leave it on the shelf, but you internalize it. You make it a part of who you are. You have no objectivity to hope. Your hope is fruitless. Your, your hope is, is meaningless. You're hoping in something that will not solve the problem with the disease. And I think there's so many people today that have bought into that false idea. That Jesus is something that you can leave in church. I have good news. And the proclamation that's going to come from his word today is that you can have true hope. True, objective hope. The kind that outshines and supersedes anything that this world could offer. And that's going to be the focus of our meditation today. If you have Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Colossians. I've picked a passage that I've wanted to preach for a long time. Uh, In this message that we're focusing on for hope, the particular passage we look at deals with genuine hope and the source of where it comes from. Now, in choosing this passage, uh, there's a couple things that I want to say just as you're uh, working your way there. Um, and I would strongly invite you, if you don't have a Bible, f- find one in the back of the pew in front of you and follow along. Because what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to tailor this uh, particular passage with a parallel passage that comes out of Romans chapter 8. As we've already heard in our reading, what I want us to see is how the two reinforce one another. And I'd love for you to have your eyes on God's word as we walk that path this morning. There's a lot of different ways that I could preach this passage out of Colossians. Um, I could do it from a perspective of the church in suffering. I could do it from the perspective of Paul's commissioning from God for the church. I could do it from the perspective of the current task of the body and what the church should be doing. But instead, I have decided to just preach the gooey sugary center of this passage. There, there's a, there, what I'm trying to say is there's so much more packed in here than, I'm gonna be, than I will be able to do justice to, but we're going to focus on just the best. You, it, what, what was that? There was a commercial about those, uh, those uh, Tootsie Pops. You remember that? How, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Yeah. We're going to the center of the Tootsie Pop this morning, church. All right? That's what we're doing with this passage. So with that in mind, uh, I invite you here, uh, Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read through verses 24 through 29, um, and then we're going to see there are three main things I want to point out with three conclusions, and and that's where we're going to go for this morning. Verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. All right, that, that, that's our passage. 
A couple of things that I want to point out uh, as we walk through this, you'll notice as Paul starts, he begins with kind of a, an entree onto his current circumstances that he says, I'm suffering, but I rejoice in my suffering, which, by the way, is something very bizarre to this world, something that the church routinely needs to pattern our understanding for how we, under, uh, how we think of suffering on this side of eternity. Um, but there's a, there's a problematic phrase in here. Uh, maybe it's one that you've kind of read a couple times and struggled with. It's the phrase he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Think with me on that for a moment. I just want to make sure that this is clear. Is something lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions that requires us to fill it up? So I I ask it in such a way that kind of causes a little skepticism because where this gets incorrectly interpreted is the idea that somewhere on the cross, on the atonement, the job was left incomplete. That, that, that would be a mistaken interpretation of what Paul is saying here. This is, that is not what Paul is saying here. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is. Yeah, so, so without question, what is lacking has nothing to do with the atonement. All right, it's finished. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was sufficient for all those who believe. In fact, sufficient for, for the world, God teaches us. So what does this mean then? That uh, something is lacking that Paul fills up in his body. And, and here's what I believe this means. Uh, in fact, the text gives you the answer, but it's kind of worded in a way that's hard to see. So if you look back again, verse 24, he says, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. What Paul is identifying here is that the church will suffer. The church will Suffer, And this, this ought to be not something that's new to us in understanding. In fact, the regular pattern, the metaphor that is given for the church is the body of Christ. And, and so the suffering that Jesus in, endured on the cross is something that in an unredeemed world that is yet to see recreation, like uh, Revelation 20 and 21, we should expect that if we are the body of Christ, we will suffer as well. Now, Paul writes in such a way that what he wants the church in Colossae to know is that he himself is undergoing a kind of suffering that has been lacking in the church. So when he says body, he's not referring to Jesus's physical body on the cross. When he says body, he means he means the church. And so the church here suffering in Colossae, Paul is giving them encouragement to say, I have been filling up something that has been lacking within the church. And that particular kind of suffering is the kind by which Paul then rejoices in because it identifies him with his Savior. You catch that? When you suffer for Jesus, you are identified with Jesus. And that is something that shouldn't cause you uh, to be sad or depressed in this world. That you ought to rejoice in. The more in unity that you come with the sufferings of Jesus, the more that you will be uh, understood that there is something offered to you beyond this world. It's actually a good thing that the church suffers. Otherwise, if this were our home, we would not look for treasures where? In heaven. You and I would seek to build treasures here on earth. So God uses suffering. Here in Colossae, there was suffering that was lacking. Paul says, I'm filling up that portion that that was lacking. So together in the body, Things are whole. That's what I believe this means. So I wanted to clear that point up. Um, the second point that I uh, want to make 
uh, deals with this idea of the mystery in verse 26. There's a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generation, but it's now disclosed to the saints. Uh, He mentions mystery again in verse 27. Uh, This mystery is referred to in other places, particularly Ephesians chapter 3, and we don't have to turn there just to summarize for you. Paul says that this is the mystery, that the Gentiles, watch this now, the Gentiles are made heirs together with the Jews. That strikes your ear as being like, so? (laughs) I mean, for the the majority of us, that really shouldn't be that uh, world-shattering. But if you lived back in this time... If you understood that God had called a certain people out of all peoples through the line of Abraham to be his chosen people. And the only hope that you have is access through the promises of God made to the Jewish people. You would know that as a Gentile, you have no hope. You would know that. You are without God. You are without hope. You are an alien and a stranger to the covenants and the promises of God because you are Gentile. The only hope that you would have would be to become Jewish. But Paul says there is a mystery that has now been made known. It's been kept hidden for ages, but in Jesus, it is declared. Now, that which was hidden for ages and generations is made known. And specifically, that the Gentiles are now made together with the Jews, the family of God. That is world-shattering. This tiny little tribe in the Middle East who worships a monotheistic God now has his name declared and praises across the globe filled with Gentiles. This was a big deal in Paul's day because in Paul's day, racism was kind of like the... Uh, just what you expected. It was how the world operated. And so Jews and Gentiles routinely divided from one another. But his call is that, nope, God has made the two into one. And that's the message that comes through in the book of Ephesians. But it is here referenced for us in verse 26 and 27. Uh, It is the great proclamation that the Gentiles are now in. Amen? You are in. This is a struggle for Jews. It was a huge struggle back in their day because the Jews understood that God's law had to be followed and the way in which you please God is a righteousness that comes through the law. Except it doesn't work because we have sin. And so every single one of those Jewish worshipers of God just couldn't ever fully, fully obey the law. And Paul says if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you might as well be guilty of breaking all of it. For at the smallest transgression of the law, death will be the result of sin. But Jesus comes to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf and therefore allow you to come in, not by merit of effort to obey the law, but upon his righteousness, having fulfilled it. That's awesome. This means Gentiles get in with the people of God through Jesus alone. And that is where obedience comes from. And here's the gooey center. Here's, Here's the center of the Tootsie Pop. Are you ready? Look with me back in verse 27. He says, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery. Who likes riches? Raise your hand. Right. Yeah, you're a good red-blooded American, right? You love riches. You know what the riches are of the mystery? It's Christ in you. 
I almost want to just wait and let that sink in for a second. Christ in you. There is no other religion on the planet where the religious leader has said anything so remotely scandalous as that. Mohammed never said, uh, it's Mohammed in you, is the hope of bliss in, in heaven. Uh, Buddha never said, it's Buddha in you, for the hope of uh, eternal nothingness or whatever they're after. <laughs> Jesus comes, and the message is, for all of those who are now welcomed into the family, here's the riches. Christ living in you. I, I want you to hold your spot in Colossians and I want you to turn to the book of Galatians just very quickly. So turn back in your New Testament just a couple of books. Galatians chapter 2. I want us to read a passage here in verse 20 that I know you're familiar with. 1658. Page 1658 in the Pew Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I'm, most of you probably know it by heart. Here, I'm going to read it out of the NIV. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what has been offered to all those who would receive Jesus. Come, deny yourself, die to yourself, and find genuine hope. If you don't, you know what you're like? You're like the fool who gets bit by the venomous snake and thinks, I ate my Wheaties today, I'll be fine. When it's clear you're going to die, you have no hope whatsoever. But from Jesus, you now have hope. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow all the 613 laws that were handed down. Jesus has fulfilled it all. All you do is come by faith in the one that God has sent, that gift that we recall at Christmas time, and receive freely to know you have been reconciled with God. You were once enemies, but you are now made whole, and therefore you have hope. In fact, if you go back at the text, look with me again, verse 27, it says, Christ in you, the what? The hope of? Wow, the hope of glory. I'm so glad that Paul writes that in here because it's not a false kind of temporary hope. The hope that I'll get healed from whatever disease I'm facing. The hope that I'll have some medical miracle that will prevent me from dying. It's all temporary fix. It's just a band-aid on the wages of sin, which is death. Jesus comes to offer you something greater. You know what it's called? Resurrection. That is your hope. I, can't, I cannot emphasize that any stronger. And I know I'm probably not hitting it hard enough that it just rocks your world, but it ought to. Resurrection will solve any problem that you have, and that is what you've been given with Christ in you. If Christ is in you, you have the antidote. You have the antivenom. You have genuine hope. It's the hope of glory. So uh, all, all that pieced together, I wanted to explain what the mystery was and, and how Paul's message here to preach to the Gentiles. That's us. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches and then to make known or make plain the administration of, those, uh, of that mystery. And that here given for us in Colossians is the idea that Christ needs to be where in your life? Christ in, in Segola? In the building? 
Oh, he, he uh, Christ hanging from my mirror on my car. Is that is that? Where's Christ? Yeah. Notice he didn't say by you. He didn't say Christ near you. He didn't say Christ in front of you. He said Christ in you. And you're fooling yourself if you're not putting that antidote in that it hits the circulatory system and it works all throughout you because that's the only place you find hope. You can't leave Jesus in church. can't leave him in the car. can't leave him in the Bible. The riches, the gooey center is him in me, all in me. Not a single part left out. And now I have hope. All right, I preach that enough. The third here uh, is the goal of the proclamation. I want you to focus here on verse 28 and 29. He says, we proclaim him. So there you go. Church, imitate Paul. That's your job. Proclaim him. We ought to pay attention to how. Let's pay attention to how he does this. The first thing I want you to see is that announcing the gooey center of Christ in you is facilitated through instruction and teachings. Everybody see that? (laughs) You, You see it, but you don't see it yet. Christ in you. Do you know how long Paul spent with the Ephesians? The church in Ephesus, do you know how long he's, time he spent teaching them? Three years. How, how often did he teach them? Just five o'clock, five to, five to six o'clock at night? The text tells us he spent three years with them day and night, teaching and instructing them that they would understand this truth. The, the facilitation of understanding Christ in you, guys, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how we do it for one hour a week. I don't know. It's done through instruction. It's done through teaching. The word here, admonishing, that's the word that's used maybe for a different translation. An admonishment is the ability to to show you, hey, you need to avoid this in your life. You need to pursue this. Admonishment is a warning. It's different than encouragement. It's different than rebuke. Paul says that's how we proclaim the gooey center. Through teaching and through instruction. So my pastoral heart for you is that you're finding time in your week. Starting, hey, uh, our cabins, Christian camaraderie. We can worship there with some instruction and teaching. Wednesday, here, in the morning if you make it. In the evening if you can make it. I trust somewhere in your life you are pursuing this kind of instruction. That you would know that gooey center. Because that's Paul's, that's how it's facilitated. Everybody with me now? Y'all get the point I'm trying to make? I don't want you just cognitively knowing, oh yeah, it's through instruction and admonition. I want it to hit right here. Oh yeah, I need more instruction. I need more admonition. Number two, um, announcing Christ in you is accomplished through wisdom. So do you see that in the text, right? Admonishing and teaching everybody with all wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So I'll, just to make in one sentence, so I'm not going to get preachy on this. It's not a matter of knowledge acquisition. It's how you use it. That's called wisdom. You got to know, get the information in your head, and then you got to know how to dispense it out. And that's what Paul does. So there is, there's a skill involved with this instruction. Number three, the goal. Do you see the goal? Does every Bible have a, have a so that in verse 28? So, so what's the goal of this, Paul? So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Your, your Bible hopefully uses a different word. Mature. Is that what you have? Good. That's a better word than, than perfect. Not that perfect is wrong, but perfect would convey this idea of the eschaton. That's not what Paul has in mind. Mature here and now. The soul building of the reclamation of God's will as opposed to human will. The path of sanctification in the life of the believer means you hopefully begin to love the things of earth less 
and love the things of God more. As you are on that path, guess what? That's the path towards maturity. Now, you guys remember, I was going to say when you were young, let's pick on your kids instead of us. So, uh, your kids, are they all super mature kids? Is, is, that, is that how it goes? No. no. And where you have, as parents have had to introduce something, what do we call that as parents to try to keep them on the straight and narrow? Oh, I heard it. Discipline. Discipline, that's right. Guess what? No different for you as a child of God. It's no different. The path to maturity requires discipline. Man, this is a harsh message today. Good to have me back, isn't it? (laughs) All right, one more. Number four, the goal of announcing Christ, so the GUI center Christ in you, involves a worthy struggle. Because I want you to see how Paul responds to this in verse 29. He says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works at me. So, Hear, hear me, elders, hear me, ministry leaders. It's not supposed to be easy. You're going to have those days where you wake up and you say, again, or I just, I just helped, or whatever. You're going to have those days. Guess what? It's a worthy struggle, and you will struggle. I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a conclusion here in a minute uh, that's going to help you with that struggle. Here, let's, let's move on to our conclusions. Number one is this. Suffering on earth for the sake of the gospel should result in joy. This comes from the very beginning, verse 24. This is the conclusion. Suffering on earth for the sake of the gospel should result in joy. I'm going to give it to you this way. It's because your suffering is temporary. The best metaphor that I can give you for this is childbirth. Not that I know. You're all like, yeah, right. All right. So I've been told that when you are in the process of labor... After you receive that which is promised to you, what happened to the pain? I'm sure it's not gone completely. Again, I don't know. But I know I've been told it is overwhelmed with the joy that you now experience. Your suffering on earth is the same way. And, and here's how I know this. The first passage I have is out of 1 Peter. Uh, just an encouragement. Peter writes, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Do you remember what it is? Christ in you, the hope of Glory. That's what suffering means for us on this side. I want you to, in your Bible, hold your spot in Colossians, go to Romans 8. We're going to do this three times, and then we're going to be done. So just as you're looking at your watches, say again. 1610. Page 1610. Thank you. Romans chapter 8. I have it up here on the screen as well. This is, this is the corollary to the message of our suffering being temporary. Uh, Tom read it already this morning. If you caught it the first time, we're going to do it a second. Here we go. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Your sufferings, whatever they may be for the gospel, guess what? They are temporary. And so they should result in joy, just like Paul says in Colossians. Second point is this. Christ in you means the hope of glory, which is kind of a direct quote, but it's a concluding point. This This is this gooey center of this passage. If Christ is in you, you have hope of resurrection, of glory. I'll give it to you this way. Your resurrection is guaranteed. 
It's guaranteed. Now, if you got your spot in Colossians, I invite you to once more go to Romans 8. And, and we're just going to move into the next, the next few verses. So uh, in verse 22, again, the best illustration I could give you, the same one that Paul gives you, is childbirth. Verse 22 says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship. Which is what? Do you see it? I don't, I don't want to lose you here. Adoption to sonship, which is the redemption of our... What's that called in one word? Resurrection. Resurrection. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. There's there's a few other verses, but just jumping down a little bit further. And we know that in all things, God who works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many Brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul uses the past tense for a future event. Glorification here is for you the guarantee of Christ in you. If you've been struck with the venom and you put the anti-venom in, you're good. It's, you're going to live. That's what Jesus is for you. It's guaranteed. Number three is this. The hope of glory means maturity. And I want to qualify that by saying nothing can steal your joy. That's one aspect of identifying those who are on the path towards maturity. Now, when you are young in Christ, boy, you're going to be, you're going to have high highs and low lows. And sometimes you're going to find every little thing just knocks you right down again. But the longer that you understand, your validation does not come from the approval of men. For you have been justified by the grace of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The longer you're on that path, the more you will realize nothing can steal your joy. For the hope of glory, it means maturity for you. And so I give it to you this way. Your hope becomes your power. Your hope is what you look to, to give you that strength and give you that energy. In fact, if you look back with me in the the word of God in verse 29, he says, to this end I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works at me. If you ever feel worn out in ministry, if ever for you it's like, I just don't know if I'm up to it, you remember the hope of glory. Because that will for you lead you to maturity that gives you the power of Christ. Now, last thing I got to say on this. As I was going over these notes and trying to frame it in a way that kind of sticks with us, I realized something. I realized I was actually teaching the opposite of what God wants us to see. Now, that's a bad thing for a preacher to do. (laughs) And so... In effort to correct that, as I looked here, every one of these pronouns at the beginning focuses on who? It, us. Let me just tell you something. That's, that's deadly. That's very dangerous. I, I even spent a little time uh, this week, uh, since I had a, a week off from the snow day, uh, I, I, go- I googled this passage just to see what other preachers had to say. Predominantly, throughout the internet, what you find is this passage gets hijacked by what's called the prosperity gospel, because they love the idea that you have the same power that Jesus has. And they, they twist it, make it say something it doesn't. And every one of their points has those second person pronouns. It's all about 
Boy, Americans like to hear that. Let me tell you something. It ain't about you. And so to correct that, I just re- rephrase these. Oh, I, I skipped Romans 8 here, but uh, let, let, me, let me rephrase it. Number one, Jesus' death and resurrection has promised you hope. Doesn't come from you. Comes from who? It's all about him. For the second one, Jesus living in you is what assures your future. It's not about you. It's all about him. And lastly, Jesus' energy propels you in all circumstances. It's not that you somehow eat your Wheaties or that you are a better Christian than somebody else. Do you see the correction I'm making here? Does everybody see that this is what we must take away from this? And so my application on those same lines comes down to this. Christmas means that you can have hope. Like, like legitimate, honest hope. Only if you remember to make it all about Jesus. And that's my challenge to you. You and I live in a godless world, in a godless age. They don't want to hear Jesus. If he is in you, that means you get to proclaim him like Paul does. And the hope that we want to have is yours. As you remember to make it all about him. I was talking to Emily this week as, as we were talking about uh, Christmas presents. And I said, hey, you, you know what I want for Jesus' birthday? <laughs> How silly is that sentence, right? Guess, guess what I get for Jesus' birthday? And we get, um, yeah, look how easy our culture has twisted this around and make it about you. It's all about him. And the hope of glory is Christ in you. Do not leave Jesus in church. You hear me? Do not leave Jesus in Segola. If you are his follower, then the hope, in you, the hope of glory in you means Christ is in you and you need to carry him with you everywhere you go this week. Everyone that you talk to. And I don't want to impose on you some false form of evangelism calling you beyond what God has equipped you for. But I do want you to know the season is not about Walmart. The season is about the birth of the Savior. And I challenge you, take him out of church and carry him with you everywhere you go. Amen. Amen.